0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: It seems like only yesterday that teenagers and 20-somethings were routinely being portrayed as reckless binge drinkers. But the truth these days is they're drinking less alcohol than previous generations, as are other Australians. Hello, I'm Paul Barclay, coming to you from NAM, Melbourne. In this Big Ideas, our changing attitudes to drinking. More people worldwide are becoming sober curious and questioning their relationship with alcohol. It's a far cry from the situation Jill Stark found herself in ten years ago when she released her best-selling book, High Sobriety, about her 12 months off the booze. Back then you couldn't find a decent alcohol-free beer, and going sober meant becoming a virtual social pariah. A decade has passed since Jill and I first spoke about her binge-drinking tendencies, and much has changed for Jill, as it has in society generally. Jill has updated her original book, retitled it Higher Sobriety, and I asked her to fill me in on her journey over the last 10 years.
0: So when I wrote Higher Sobriety at the end of the book I went back to drinking and honestly I wasn't prepared for the reaction to that book and I certainly wasn't prepared for a lot of people who were deeply disappointed in my decision <laughs> to go back to drinking and some were actually furious you know messaging me emailing me saying you know how could you go back to drinking after all you've learned and I'd never promised that I was going to stop for a year that was never the intention it was just basically it was a 3 month experiment that ended up being a book deal. And so I did it for a year for that reason. And it was a very illuminating and rewarding year, but I I hadn't planned to stop forever. So I felt very much at the end of that experience that there was a great deal of pressure on my shoulders that a lot of people had tied their relationship with alcohol to mine, and I, I found that quite unsettling. You know, people would come up to me in bars and sort of point to my glass of wine and say, "Aren't you that woman who wrote a book about sobriety?" And I, I'd feel like I'd let people mm. down. And you were the um,
1: poster girl for sobriety, really, weren't you? I mean, not, not that you appointed yourself to that; other people appointed no, you to it. No, and it was
0: literally the headline on the front page of a, of a newspaper in the UK when I launched the book. There was poster girl for sobriety, and I thought i never asked to be you know, the figurehead for the temperance movement, but that's what I unwittingly became. And I think it was a difficult experience to feel that I had a lot of other people's hopes and dreams on my shoulders, if you like, particularly people who really had some quite significant issues with alcohol. So, yeah, I I guess I went back to what at first was mindful, moderate drinking, and I thought I'd mastered that and, you know, slowly, gradually old habits crept back in, which is something that the addiction specialist had warned me is is pretty common for people who have had a history of binge drinking. You know, I, I never defined myself as an alcoholic. I didn't go into rehab or anything. I just stopped drinking. And But he, you know, if you remember in the book, that uh, professor of Addiction medicine described what my trajectory as pre-malignant addiction. So what he was saying was, he's, yeah, it's not not a word you ever, not a phrase you ever want to hear. But he was saying, it's not, it's like a, a sort of cancer growing, you know, you, or a precancerous cells. Like you don't have this illness yet, but if you continue on this path, you may have. So I guess that's what he had he had warned. And I found over the years that I was back to getting drunk and, you know, planning to have a couple of drinks but ending up getting home at 3am and and it was all very fun. And I put that in air quotes, you know, it's Mm. all very part of the persona of who I thought I was, you know, Jill Stark, Starker's the party girl, like first Mm. on the dance floor, last to leave the party. And it was only, you know, in 2014, 2015, I had a pretty serious mental health crisis, a a breakdown, which my psychologist later rebranded as a breakthrough, because that's often in these moments of struggle, we find out the most about ourselves. And I documented that experience in my second book, Happy Never After. But in the years following that, when I was sort of rebuilding myself from the ashes of that crisis I, I started to have this niggling internal voice and I think we all have that intuition that knowing that's trying to get our attention trying to tell us that the path we're on is not the best one for us and it was telling me that the life that I wanted and for my mental health to be stable was not conducive to to the big nights out of drinking mm. that I was having. And so I could no longer ignore the correlation between the huge dip in my mood and my nights of getting on the piss. Mm. So it, it took a while for that internal voice to actually be loud enough for me to hear with the help of, of my psychologist who, who asked me a very pertinent question because she's, she's never very prescriptive about, she would never tell me what to do, but she asked me to consider a question. And that question was, Is drinking getting you closer to the life that you want, or further away? And and, it's a great
1: question, isn't it?
0: Isn't it? And I think that's that's the thing that I explore in the new chapters of this updated version of of high sobriety, higher sobriety. Is I think a lot of people ask themselves, "Am I I an alcoholic?" Mm. And the answer might be no, because they don't tick the clinical boxes, and they're able to go like days without drinking. They're not waking up like craving a drink they're not sneaking a wine at work or anything like that but but you know maybe that's the wrong question to ask mm. it's more is is your drinking impairing your mental and physical health is it affecting your relationships is it getting in the way of the work that you want to do and for for me all of those
1: is it compromising a sense of how you see yourself and your values It was as well. very much
0: a value judgment. And when I say that, that's not... I don't want people to hear that as um, if you drink, I'm saying there's a moral judgment on that. It was more I was building a life that I... from that mental health crisis and trying to rebuild myself and re-understand who, who I was. And it really was a very deep sense of a journey of self-discovery and trying to figure out how I wanted to live and my psychologist Veronica was asking me to sort of understand what my values were and I, and I realised that to live the kind of rich and full and authentic and clear-eyed, honest life. And when I say honest, I mean honest to myself and to the people around me and to be the kind and compassionate person that I wanted to be. Drinking was getting in the way of that because often I was doing things when I was drunk that did not align with my values. Mm. You know, there was one friendship that didn't survive because of something I did when I was drunk. And I, I can't tell that story because it's not my story to tell, but it's it's something that I can't ever mm. take back. And I, I I wonder how many other friendships would have would have gone by the wayside had I continued. And I was starting to to feel that my, my friendships were, were being impacted because I would get drunk and all of the emotional issues that I was able to work through rationally in therapy in the sober, cold light of day. When you're drunk, your impulse control goes out the window. You're more mm. irrational. All those emotional issues come like racing to the surface and you're almost like childlike in the way that you interact with the world. and. I was, you know, messaging my best friend at three in the morning because he wasn't answering his phone. Why should he answer his phone at three in the morning? And waking up and not even remembering what I'd said and what I'd done and, and it was really having how, a how do, how do you, impact.
1: How do you look back on that now? I mean, you write about feeling a great sense of shame at not mm. being able to pull off this moderate drinking thing. Obviously, you've processed it all now. You're many years sober. But how do you, how do you look back on that period now?
0: I think shame is a really corrosive emotion. Mm-hmm. Um, it doesn't allow us to to change course. It doesn't motivate us. It paralyzes us in many ways. You know, I think there's a difference. Brene Brown, uh, the vulnerability researcher, she talks about the difference between shame and, and guilt. And guilt is feeling like you've made a mistake and shame is feeling like you are a mistake. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I felt that very much like there was something deeply wrong with me that I, I could not break this pattern and how am I back here again after I wrote this book about, you know, what I learned about not drinking and here I am making the same mistakes and blowing my life up. Um, And I think the more that I read about Alcohol and drinking, and the, and the the thing that's I'm sure we'll get into this, but one of the things that's changed in the last ten years is this vast canon of what's known as quit lit, literature, books written by people who have quit drinking, and I was able to see a lot of myself in those books because when High Sobriety came out, there wasn't really any other books like that around, mm. so which is one of the reasons I got so much attention at the time because I was having a conversation that wasn't really being had at that point, so when i was able to read other people's experiences lots of women i have to say of the similar age who who exactly the same story as mine professional women who were were kind of good time party girls they didn't see themselves as alcoholics they just had this issue where they would binge drink and then try to change p- the pattern and they couldn't and they'd maybe have a spell of sobriety and go back to it and work and couldn't work out why they were having these issues and ruby warrington who wrote the book sober curious she she says that you know she thinks that everyone who drinks is what she describes as a little bit addicted. Mm -hmm. And I think what she means by that is not that everyone's got a a full-blown dependency, but you're somewhere on that continuum that even if you're only drinking once a week, the the idea that you you need a wine to unwind after a stressful day, or you need a beer to be in a social situation, that is a a form of social addiction in in a way. And I, I think realizing that this is that moderation is difficult for a lot of people, mm. that we're trying to moderate one of the most addictive drugs that are that is on the market. And if it was to be introduced to the market in 2023, it probably wouldn't be legalized because mm. it is so destructive and it is so addictive. And so I think this sense of shame that I had for not being able to moderate, I was able to see, well, I'm trying to do something that is actually very difficult to do. The way that alcohol works in our brain, it will always make us crave more because it works on our dopamine receptors, the pleasure centers in our brain that feels good. And so we try to repeat that and it's kind of the law of diminishing returns because the more you drink, the farther away you are from that initial buzzy feeling. But um, yeah, like it's... it's. And more and
1: more people are realizing this and you do talk about this in your book, that when you first gave up 10 years ago, you're very aware of this alcohol-soaked culture that we lived in. It was very hard to avoid drinking. Those who were seeking to abstain from the grog were made to feel excluded and a bit of a social pariah. And if you were lucky, you got a glass of soda water shoved in front of you. Fast forward 10 years, all of a sudden there's a range of good non-alcoholic drinks around, But, but more to the point, the culture has changed and that must make it easier for someone like you who is seeking to avoid alcohol.
0: Absolutely. The culture has shifted immeasurably. Now, there's still a long way to go. We still do live in a in a culture that we where drinking is the predominant sort of social pastime when, when we go out. But the, as you say, back then, it was a quite a lonely existence to be sober. I was told that I was un-Australian, that I was a wowser, that I was boring. People were very defensive about my decision not to drink. I had one friend who famously said, you know, once you've written your... Book about a year without booze. You can write a sequel and call it my year without mates. Like, oh, look, like the idea was that I just would be socially excommunicated from my circle of friends. Which, and were you to some degree, but I think what I've realised now is that the people who I no longer see mm. were never really friends in the first place. They, they were, were just drinking buddies. They were buddies. drinking buddies, mm. and there was. And when you take alcohol out of that equation. It's the glue that was holding it together. So mm. we kind of disintegrated completely. So there's, there's friends that I don't see anymore. This time around, since I gave up drinking, my circle of friends, who, who largely all still drink, have been incredibly supportive because they know why I'm doing it. And it was largely a, a mental health reason. The, the, the impacts of those hangovers, the anxiety the next morning were becoming too troubling. Um, I like troubling. that term, hangxiety.
1: <laughs> it, it is very much that feeling of feeling physically wrecked after a night on the grog but that's spilling over very much into how you feel psychologically. And
0: the shame, as you say, and the replaying what you did and what you said and the regret and and all of those feelings. Like, it's an awful feeling. And I, I looked at that in the new chapters of the book. Like, it's not happening by accident. It's actually a chemical storm that's happening in your brain. Like, the reason you feel anxiety and increased levels of agitation and restlessness and, and anxiety is because of the way alcohol breaks down in your body. So mm. but to get back to your question around the culture, I think... Being able to walk into a bar or a restaurant and have something that's not just a sad glass of soda water or or a can of Coke has really changed the game for me. And I should should say from the outset that in sober circles, there is some tensions around this, like some people, particularly if they've had a, a history of quite significant dependency. Drinks that smell and taste and look like alcohol can be triggering and can be a pathway back to ah, drinking for yeah, some right. people. So because
1: the beer, they're not. It's, they're it's not, so good. It, it's it's like beer, <laughs> you right? No, right. Mm. And
0: so, I think for me, I I don't feel that when I drink those drinks. I just I love having a beer on a hot mm. day, being able to have a a, a wine. Um, at home with dinner, uh, the, the spirits, as you say, there's so many things there now that we can choose from. But, yeah, obviously for some people that is... That is the wine's
1: not as good as the beer.
0: The wine's not as good. And I, don't I, I don't think it will ever ever quite get to that point. But the beer, I think, is... is That that has been one of the major shifts, is that one of the, the beer companies, they've basically normalised not drinking but looking like you're drinking. And so this company, they launched in 2020 in the middle of lockdown and within a very short space of time had just become this multi-million dollar business and everywhere you go now you can get that that beer but also all sorts of um, non-alcoholic beers but i think what those guys tapped into was it's not just people like like me who are completely sober that are Mm -hmm. opting for those drinks like the guys who run heaps normal are just a bunch of young guys who still drink themselves but uh, who wanted to. Some of them were surfers. They wanted to be able to get up early in the morning, but still have a beer with their mates in the pub the night before. They say a lot of their customers are young tradies who need to get up early and, but still want to have that sense of ritual and ceremony that you have from having mm. a drink with your mate. They these are young guys who are 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 marketing to a demographic that when I was writing high sobriety the first time around, this was a generation that the health experts said we're an alcohol time bomb waiting to go off.
1: This is the binge-drinking teenage 20-somethings who we used to stereotype very much, but actually people are drinking less. Younger people in particular are drinking less. Now, they're either going off the grog completely like you have or they're just drinking less generally. What has brought... About this
0: change, I think it's so interesting because, as you say, it's the sober curious and sobriety movement is really being led by young people. Hello Sunday Morning, which was an organisation that I first sort of signed up to, to blog about my experiences in 2011 when I when I quit drinking the first time. That, you know that was a, a, a movement that was started on a, on Chris Rain's kitchen table up in Queensland, and it was it's now a global movement it's it's huge and back then their average age was someone in their 20s and now the average age of their people who are signing up are is 47 it's really shifted and i think mm. you know i was the health reporter binge drinking health reporter writing about Australia's (laughs) alcohol culture during the week and then writing myself off at the weekends and the experts were telling me like this this is a huge problem on the horizon for these young people they were ending up in hospital with accidents and injuries from from drinking they were their their health implications the social implications were really quite profound and uh, yeah what has changed the researchers aren't entirely sure exactly if it's one thing, but some of the theories that they're putting forward is, well, one, back then, 2008, 2009, Kevin Rudd put in a a binge drinking national strategy that was very much bringing awareness to the impacts of drinking. So that may have had an effect. I think one of the main drivers is that young people are growing up in a very volatile climate both environmentally and economically Mm. and there's not much that they can control they're probably not going to own their own home and who knows what the planet's going to look like in a few years so there's this real sense of like seeking control and agency over their lives Mm. and the other thing that i think which i think is probably one of the main drivers is the social contagion effect and Back then, social media was being blamed and we didn't really have TikTok and Instagram was still in its infancy. But like Facebook, like people would post, you know, I'm still getting Facebook memories popping up from 2009 about how hungover I am. Mm. And, you know, you would publish this post about how hungover you were as a sort of badge of honour. And the researchers said that young people were posting pictures of themselves drunk and and social media was still in its infancy and they didn't really understand that there's a, there's a digital footprint that stays with you forever. Mm. So you put something up of you looking wasted an employer might see that. And I think they understand that now in a way that they didn't back then. But it, there was a real sense of social capital that came from boasting about your big nights out on the lash. Whereas now they think that the social contagion effect is working in reverse. Mm. So... We, they're, you know, they say that you, you can't be what you can't see. Like for me back then, as I said, it was a sad and lonely existence and everyone around me was drinking and I couldn't see anyone that was living a rich and fulfilling life as a sober person. You know, it was all very much like, oh, you must just be church-going pensioners if Mm. you're not drinking kind of thing. That was the stereotype. And now we're seeing this incredible rise of the sober curious movement, which in itself I think is a really clever shift in marketing. It's like sobriety's had a makeover. It's not wowserism either. I mean, that's
1: the thing about people like yourself. You're not looking down at those people who are drinking. (laughs) You're not trying to convert anybody. The one thing, though, that, of course, came in the midst of all this was the pandemic. And you're in Melbourne we know alcohol is particularly good at, at self-medicating, and we think it helps to make us relax at stressful times. Things didn't get much more stressful than the <laughs> lockdowns yeah. in Melbourne. How do you think the pandemic affected alcohol consumption? Will we all... Um, getting on the beers, to uh, use that familiar phrase?
0: Well, I mean, I talk about the getting on the beers phrase in the new chapters of the book because that was one of the most alienating experiences for me was the only time that I felt like I wanted to drink. Not because the Premier of Victoria was saying, get on the beers, and I felt like I had to. It was more the idea that get on the beers became cultural shorthand for getting back to normal. Mm. And... We'd just gone through a collective trauma as a state. I mean, I know the whole country did it, but in Melbourne, we did six lockdowns. And the idea that what would signal life being normal again was to get drunk was something I couldn't take part in. So where did that leave me? But yeah, I think the pandemic, it had two impacts. Uh, For me personally, I was nine months into my second stint of sobriety at that time. And I did have a initial kind of wobble of thinking, oh, well, you know, if you can't get back on the beers in the middle of a apocalyptic, mm. <laughs> dystopian future, then when can you? But then I realised, as you said, that alcohol is, is not a, a good therapist or a good friend. Mm. And for me, the anxiety that would have come from drinking would have made what was an extraordinary period in history so much more challenging to yeah. cope with.
1: I think that's right. I mean, and I think using alcohol in that way to alleviate a stress that we're all feeling if you're already predisposed to not dealing with alcohol very well would have been a very bad choice And that you. is what
0: happened for a lot of people and it was aggressively marketed by the alcohol industry, you know, an industry not known for its social responsibility, really kind of threw any sense of, of moral judgment out of the window at that point because there was a huge amount of marketing uh, that was saying things like confinement sale, you know, st- like stay home like drink up, these are really the kind of messages that people were getting and they were really selling alcohol as a way way to cope which was you know pretty irresponsible but you could get w-
1: it you could get alcohol delivered to your home within five minutes of making the phone call
0: and also like if you think about when lockdown was first announced um the very first lockdown in the days before it when we knew that things were going to get locked down but we didn't know what because it was all new to us there was huge queues outside bottle shops because people were panic buying and then they weren't shut down because they were considered an essential service which in itself says a lot about the culture that we live in but anyway i think the two things that happened for a lot of people during lockdown was that it forced a lot of people to confront how they drink and why. So a lot of people who consider themselves social drinkers realised that the social outlets Mm. had been taken away from them and yet they were still wanting to drink. So Mm. what did that say about their relationship with alcohol? And we know from the stats and the research that it did lead to far more Australians drinking to cope, drinking more than they did prior to the pandemic. But what it also did... I think, is it turbo-boosted the Sober Curious movement, which was already on the march. But this really, I think, you know, when you have a seismic event that is forcing you to to reevaluate the way that you're living your life. You know, if if nothing is guaranteed anymore, there's no certainty and you don't know what's around the corner, why waste your life being hung over all the time? And I think a lot of people, particularly women in my age group, that's what the the, um, clinicians and the researchers are telling us, that women in their 40s to 60s who were predominantly are, are taking on more of a, a, a caring role and were impacted by the pandemic perhaps more than other groups. They were the ones that ended up with drinking habits that were quite problematic and mm. they are the ones now that are starting to change course and there's a lot of um, sobriety coaches in that space who sort of specialise in what they call grey area drinking. So these are people who and again, I think that's a clever shift in marketing. Like people labels I don't think are particularly helpful, but but people don't want to be labeled as an alcoholic, but they might be like, well, I I still think there's a problem here, but it's not quite at that level, it's not quite at that level, but something's not quite right. So these these women have kind of, like me, had their own experiences that they now want to, to share. And so I think that the, the pandemic really focused people's attention on why we drink, how we drink, and perhaps Like really force people to change course in many Mm. ways.
1: So if we're drinking less, and if young people in particular are drinking less, do we know, and alcohol is expensive, do we know whether or not they're shifting their recreational drug preferences elsewhere? So are younger people, for example, taking more party drugs, smoking more pot, giving up the grog? Do we know anything about that?
0: So I I think a a lot of... Cynical people of my age and maybe the the boomer age say, oh, they're not drinking because they're just all high and they're all taking ice and they're all like popping pills or whatever. There isn't any evidence of that so far. Maybe that will emerge. But from what I can understand from the researchers, that's not happening. I think that they are more health conscious than they were. And I do think that alcohol, It's as I say, it's still omnipresent. It's still very much... A huge factor in in how we socialize, but I do think we're going to get to a point where being blind drunk is mm. going to be similar to the way we now view smoking, in mm. <laughs> as much as it's just a bit on the nose. It's a bit socially like awkward when you see that someone who's really really messy drunk is not necessarily something that you want to to boast about. And yeah, l- like young people don't want to put images like that of themselves out there. You just don't see that as much as you did, and I, I think that's again like being uh, somewhat led by this generation of sober curious and sober influencers who are young and vibrant and out there living their best lives without alcohol. They they don't look like wowsers. They mm. They're not telling you not to drink. They're just saying this is how I'm living and I'm getting all these benefits. And that has that contagion effect where people are like, oh, maybe I could live without alcohol.
1: So for you you've not just given up alcohol. In a sense, you've challenged your own identity, the identity that you'd built up from a young age of being the fun-loving, party-loving, hard-drinking person. Has that been difficult for you? And in giving up, have you had to imagine a different sense of, of self-identity? So in other words, is it more than just giving up alcohol for you?
0: It's so much more than just giving up alcohol, Paul. I think... When I wrote High Sobriety and it came out in 2013, I don't think I really got under the surface of, of why I, I drank. I mean, I, d- I did look at all the different drivers, the external factors, the industry, the marketing, the peer pressure. But this time around has been, you know, it's nearly four years in June since I quit drinking. It's been such a excavation of self, like a really deep dive, you know, which is partly of the work I've done in therapy, but it was only when I quit drinking that I was able to go deeper in therapy and really understand myself a lot more. And I think that, yeah, you do have to sort of reinvent yourself and there's a certain process of grieving, of mourning the person that you were and mm. thinking, well, am I never going to get drunk again? Am I never going to be that person like, oh, she's so fun at a party? Like, I'd like to think I'm still fun. But, you know, it, it, it is, I think it's a an evolving and continuous journey of, of understanding who you are and, and becoming comfortable with yourself as the person who's not out till 5am and, and, and being okay with that. But I think one of the things I've really discovered is that I think this is probably true for a lot of people. Like the the main the main two reasons for me drinking were one to increase pleasure and two to reduce pain, emotional pain, whatever it might be. And when you can learn to do both of those things without alcohol, like that to me is the definition of liberation. Like that's that's what I feel now is that I don't need that substance to feel those things. And I am not evangelical about sobriety. I'm not saying it's always easy, it absolutely isn't. It can be challenging, it can be hard, it can be, as I say, a process of grieving, but I feel like the rewards I get from it are so much greater than than the challenges. And one of the things I often say about, about this experience when people are like, well, how do you deal with the difficult emotions? And, and I say, well, if the worst thing about sobriety is you get to feel all your feelings, mm. then the best thing about sobriety is you get to feel all your feelings. Mm. So while I may be you know, confronting issues that perhaps before I just papered over or didn't want to look at, now I can see them close up. The stark reality, which is something that they named a cocktail after me at a non-alcoholic <laughs> bar called the stark reality. And I thought that was a really great name for it because the stark reality of sobriety is it's confronting and it's raw and it's real. it's real and it strips you bare. But when you have the courage to look at all those issues that you were perhaps ignoring because you were just drinking your way through it, that can be really rewarding. And the flip side is that I feel like joy more not all the time not all day every day like i'm not mm. i'm not a robot but i feel like these moments of heart bursting joy and and a sense of connection to myself and to others that i just that is so much deeper than it was prior mm. to sobriety and i think that is the the biggest reward that i've got you know like a, a friend of mine said to me recently that the greatest compliment that I think I've been given. And she said, she turned to me and she said, you know, in all the years I've known you, I don't think I've ever seen you with such a strong sense of self. And, and I felt like that's exactly what this is. It's like I've, I've found out who I really am. And yeah, you can grieve for the party girl, but who's left behind, she's pretty cool too. Mm. So I'm really happy with that.
1: Jill Stark, author of Higher Sobriety. 10 years ago, Jill Stark was, in her own words, the binge-drinking health reporter for the Age newspaper. Then, after one too many big nights on the booze, she went on the wagon and wrote her book, High Sobriety. Let's revisit some of that original conversation from Avid Reader Bookstore in Brisbane in 2013. So we should begin talking about that hangover, the hangover that spawned a year off the grog. It must have been a pretty bad one. It was
0: a ripper. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it was the worst hangover I've ever had, um, which is quite a big call for someone who was drinking for 20 years like that. But yeah, I woke up um, January 1, 2011, and I think I didn't wake up till about lunchtime. But yeah, I just thought I can't. Carry on like this, and uh, it was a hangover that lasted for about two days, actually, maybe Ooh. three. And I just thought there has to be a line in the sand here, and that's when I decided to make a change.
1: So it was the epiphany, really, was it? That hangover was something building before that. It was definitely
0: that? building. I think the epiphany had been squashed to the back of my mind <laughs> for quite a while. Like I met um, Chris Rain, who is from Hello Sunday Morning. He's the founder of a fantastic online movement about that led me to, to sort of give up the grog. Um, when I met him and did a story on him in uh, 2010 there was something very infectious about the way that he was living and he'd given up grog for a year at the age of 22 and I thought god if he can do that at that age when that must be very difficult and he was kicking so many goals and the bloggers that were on on hello sunday morning page were just so invigorated with life and I thought Mm. this is this is something I could give a go but it took another year before that hangover really was the um, mm. yeah the, the catalyst?
1: It would have been a while since you had taken Sunday morning by the horns and uh, really enjoyed that part of the week. I
0: don't think I'd seen Sunday mornings <laughs> for a long time, but yeah, that, I think that's it. You, you sort of get to your mid thirties and you think, well, when's this going to stop? I've been doing this since I was a teenager, and it was just getting really boring, to be honest. And mm. what was I doing? I just I live in this beautiful country. You know, I've come from Scotland where it rains all the time. If you miss Sundays, it's not a big deal. <laughs> but in in Melbourne, the, the summers are fantastic. And I missed a lot of that because I was hiding under the duna, just feeling absolutely awful. So, yeah, it was sort of really a time for self-reflection. How much were you drinking and what was
1: the pattern of your drinking? You, you were essentially a social drinker. You drank amongst friends. Very
0: sociable drinker. Yeah. <laughs> Very sociable yeah. drinker. Yeah. Every weekend for as long as I could remember. I don't think, I mean, occasionally I guess I'd have a weekend off, but that was just the pattern. I was quiet every every weekend. I didn't drink that much during the week unless there was an event. And if there was an event I would tend to probably get drunk at it, but I didn't drink that much at home, although I did, you know, often drink a glass of wine to unwind after a tough mm. day. But yeah, I, I, well, the thing is that I wasn't drinking in any different way to anyone around me, really, to all my friends. And that's mm. that's what I think this book is about is I think my story is kind of quite universal. Yeah. Um, and that's hopefully why it resonates is because we do inhabit this culture where where people are writing themselves off at the weekend and and when you look around and your friends are all doing it it's just so easy to sort of slip seamlessly into that norm and and not really see it as an issue and for many people that's fine they can do that and not have any consequences but for me when you're having a panic attack and you have to pull the car over to the side of the road because you mm. can't breathe properly because you're so hung over as I've documented in the first few pages of this book that was a time to say well how much is drinking really worth to me if this is the consequence.
1: Mm. We're talking about In terms of the number of drinks on a big night, what eight,
0: ten? Yeah, I wouldn't really count it, but I suppose so. Yeah, and and you know, it's not. I think that if you drink at say a barbecue at the weekend during the day and it it goes on. Way into the night. I mean, how easy is it to just lose count of how many drinks you've had? It's not. Mm. It's not difficult. And yeah, we we'll probably easily drink ten drinks a night. And you know, I was not the biggest drinker by any stretch of the imagination in my friendship group. Yeah. And again, it's sort of easy to to just see that as normal. Um, but as a doctor that, who I interviewed for the book, who, who ended up taking a bit of a clinical history on me, um, said to me, you know, just because something is normal doesn't mean it's healthy. And that was something that really stayed with me.
1: And the thing about hangovers, we were talking about this just a. Moment. moment ago, you know, you feel physically crook and everybody else thinks it's quite funny that you have to lie in bed all day to overcome this big night on the grog, but actually, emotionally there, you're in an incredibly fraught state, aren't you? You feel emotionally, or can, very fragile indeed. That's almost the worst part about it, and I get the feeling that that was the hangover that you had that was really you know that was really the issue for Uh, you that you were feeling emotionally spent
0: absolutely and that's for me as someone who suffered with anxiety and depression as a a teenager and and growing up and I sort of largely had got over that and then the panic attack started to come back in and I thought well what's what's happening here and it, it was alcohol and I don't think so many of us realize the link between those hangovers and like you say that feeling of wretchedness that you and you know when you start you're sobbing in front of the biggest loser you're thinking okay what, what, <laughs> what, what why? everything everything just amplified you know you just suddenly feel that the smallest things become the biggest issues and really now um, even though I've gone back to drinking again I, I can my, my handle my emotions is so different now that I've drink in a different way
1: yeah but you were the last person really in your friendship group who they expected would give up yeah. the drink. Um, it came as a as a shock to your friends. You were the life of the party, one of the last people to leave. We all know people like that. Maybe we've all been that person ourselves at some stage in our life. Did you fear when you gave up the grog that you'd be less fun to be around that you'd become boring and that in fact some of the things that you enjoyed doing in life would themselves be less enjoyable without the grog?
0: Definitely I think you know so many of us drink in a, in a way that our identities are sort of linked to being that that party animal and the way I described it in the book was when I gave up drinking it was my friends were so surprised it was something akin to to sort of Hugh Hefner announcing plans to join the priesthood you know it was just <laughs> this, this what why what who would I be and you know my nickname is Starker Starker's the party girl like who, who would I be without that and it is quite confronting I think that I interview people who have been through rehab and um, people who've got serious alcohol addiction and who can never drink again and and one of the chaps that I interviewed in, in the book really talked about that about how he had to reinvent himself as he almost had to have a new personality because mm. he no longer was that fun bumbling guy at the party and he said but you know I wouldn't swap it for anything but definitely there were times during the year where I just felt a bit beige you know mm. without the, the glass and my hand but I mean, most of the things that I used to do drunk that I wouldn't do sober were pretty stupid anyway. We'll, we'll, no we'll, we'll come to
1: some of those <laughs> um, a little later on. <laughs> One of the things, though, is going out to see live music, to go and see bands, yep. which, incidentally, I'm doing later on tonight and hopefully won't be overindulging while <laughs> I'm doing it. I love the... Pho- you're probably incredibly embarrassed by this. I love the photograph, of you in the article in The Age, the night you go to see Primal Scream yep. play in Melbourne. When you're totally in the moment, totally exhilarated and overcome by the music, and you look at that photograph and you're stone-cold sober. And it's a reminder that those things that you love, like going to see live Mm. music, for example, don't have to be alcohol-fueled.
0: What's amazing, actually, when you take alcohol out of the equation for your social life for a while, that those sort of things, being in the moment actually becomes more heightened because I realised when I went to that gig, I went to the forum and all my friends are queuing at the bar and there's like six deep at the bar and people are spending $10 on rubbish beer and I just thought, oh, I'm just here watching the band and normally I'd be off to go and buy a drink and I'd miss one of the songs or I'd have to go to the toilet and I was just there dancing going this is what it's about and and again when I go back to Scotland and spend time with family during that year and I write about the the trip that I have with my mum to the highlands and I'm standing in front of this waterfall weeping (laughs) at the beauty of it all and I just think well it just made me appreciate life in a way that I hadn't before which Mm -hmm. you know sounds all very a bit a bit cliched but it's true like I think that you start focusing in on the people that you're spending time with and the, the situation that you're in rather than where's my next drink and, mm. you know, I've got to make sure I've got the buzz going and stuff. When you're just in the moment, it's actually quite a special thing.
1: Yeah, and it's okay for you. In fact, it can be more enjoyable. But for other people, they respond differently to you when you're not drinking. So, for for example... They don't want to lose control when you're maintaining control. I wonder how that affected your relationships with your girlfriends because sometimes intimacy is lubricated by a drink Mm. or two and you can find yourself saying things and being honest about certain things that perhaps the restraint of, of, of not having a drink or two would get in the way of
0: definitely find that with um it depended who the friends were like um some of my friends had no issue with it at all and just were like oh you're just as much fun as you are when when you're not drinking but i found that the the girls that had the biggest problem with it were the ones who had were socially quite shy and a drink for them was a way to like you say be more intimate with the people that were close to them and i sort of describe it as uh, drinking is like a social contract you sort of when you sit down and have a drink with someone you're you're saying i'm going to be disinhibited and i'm going to like my barriers stone in a way and when someone doesn't do that it can create this sort of friction between you even and I find that quite confronting because I didn't want to make my friends feel uncomfortable by my choices but for some of them it was that sense of like you say them being in con- uh, me being in control and them feeling like they weren't that was really quite difficult. In a group it's actually much easier, mm. but if it's two of you and I find that, that you couldn't spend the entire night with one person steadily getting drunk and the other person yeah. Not. but yeah, it's, it's an interesting dynamic. There's though. also
1: that sense that perhaps they think that you're making a judgement about them by giving up grog, uh, did you come across that that people thought that your decision Constantly. was reflecting upon them?
0: Yeah, the judgment thing was a real a real issue, and I, well, that's the sort of the way that I tried to write the book was the way that I tried to live that year was without judgment and without you know making people feel like I would retreated to the moral high ground. I mean, how could I? I was the binge drinking health reporter who used to get <laughs> absolutely off a face every weekend. So yeah, that that sort of sense of you're judging us. And when I, I found out through other friends that um, some of my girlfriends were saying that they felt judged, and I, I had to to sort of approach them and and sort of sit down and say, okay, let's talk about this, why do you feel that way? And he said, well, we all drink in the same way and you've chosen not to. Therefore, you're saying that what we do is bad. And I, I said, well, no, I'm saying that what I was doing led me to feel so emotionally spent that I couldn't carry on the way I was going without having a break. If you can drink in that way and you don't feel like that, then good luck to you. That's mm-hmm. And so I think that from that conversation, they actually understood a bit more what was happening and it made things a bit easier. But there's no doubt there's something about our culture that makes people a little bit sceptical, a little bit almost nervous around people who are not drinking. It's as if they don't trust them.
1: Were you at all worried this confession that you were a weekend binge drinker would damage your credibility as a journalist? Because when you work on a particular round, you build up confidences and relationships with experts mm-hmm. who've come to know you and, you know, become quite friendly with you and perhaps think they know a bit about your personal life. Some of these people subsequently find out that you're the problem rather than the solution.
0: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I, th- I think it was a big decision to write that story, and I remember standing over the news desk at the age of the night before it went to print and my editor in her inimitable way saying, I can't believe you're about to do this. <laughs> and I said... <laughs> Oh, she's like, no, it's good. It's really brave, but it's, you know, it'll get a good reaction. But I just, I thought about those contacts and people that really trusted me. And I talk about that in the first few mm. pages of this book, that these are these are, are, are very, you know, men who advise the prime minister and the government on, on alcohol policy who trust me. And there's me outing myself as, as you say, as the problem. But what actually happened was when I won, I've won the National Drug and Alcohol Awards media award for my writing on alcohol in 2008 and i went out that night and got plastered. and
1: oh media awards yeah i yeah, mean what are you going to
0: do but... the, the,
1: the worst hangover i've ever had in my life was after winning a walkley award and go, uh, i, I thought i was going to die yeah. the next day
0: yeah. 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 yeah yeah well so that was in 2008 and i did get drunk that night and and i talk about this in the book and in the article that um i wrote that led to the book and interestingly i won the award again in 2011 <laughs> for the article yeah. that were in which i outed myself as a binge drinker so i think that was a kind of um, validation from the industry from the people in the public That's health nice, sector isn't it? Yeah, well they sort of said to me a lot of them said that the reason that you won this award is because we think it will have more effect because you've been honest Mm. than perhaps, you know, the government campaigns and that sort of stuff. They said that because you've actually put yourself out there, people paid attention and that's what kind of led them not to all disown me completely. That must have been
1: (laughs) especially an especially good feeling for you winning the award under those circumstances. Because, you know, you had been very brave. Actually the thing about this book, I must say, is the incredible honesty You confess to not only regular binge drinking, but to scarcely being able to engage in many aspects of your life without alcohol. Mm. You admit, for example, that most of the time you meet men at uh, bars or at parties, you're drinking or you're drunk. You write about times where you simply have no memory of the night before, of pondering whether you're addicted to alcohol. You joke about being the proverbial health reporter with the, the binge drinking habit, and you undertake a series of medical tests to determine whether or not your health has been damaged. You basically, in this book, lay yourself bare in embarrassing detail. How hard was that for you to do?
0: I'm a bit scared now. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was okay. No, I, um, yeah, I guess just now I'm taking it back now, but um, it's yeah, too late. It is too late. I think, like, to be honest. It is confronting, particularly the last few weeks. I mean our finished writing this book almost a year ago and and here it is on the shelves and to do all the media and have people say these things it's like oh yeah that's right I did say that (laughs) but I think from talking to my friends and my colleagues and and people in the general community who've who've contacted me this is a universal conversation this is something you know I um, did a straw poll of my girlfriends when I wrote the chapter about sober dating and said when was the last time you had a sober first kiss and none of them could remember so this is not unique to me I'm just probably the only person that's been stupid enough to put it in a (laughs) book but yeah it's the story it's it's the way that we as a culture interact with each other so um, I don't feel exposed in that sense because I think that most people if they're honest will say that there's maybe not the entire story but there'll be parts of it that they can relate to and say yep yeah. yeah, that's me.
1: That aspect actually is very striking in the book. You write getting drunk has been my standard method of meeting and hooking up with guys for as long as I can remember and to date it has brought me little satisfaction. <laughs> now as you say that's some admission from you, but actually it's an acknowledgement that that is how many, many women are relating mm. to men. That is, And a, vice versa. And vice versa, yes. indeed. It's a, it's a mutual... It's not good. It's not <laughs> healthy.
0: No, it's not. A bit, but what's interesting is, and thanks for not picking the worst parts of that chapter yeah. to read out loud... <laughs>
1: I, I, did, I did have I did have it written down, but I don't think I'll.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Not with mum in the audience. No. I think, um, although she has read it. But um, I think what was interesting when I took alcohol out of the equation was how quickly some of the men that I met while I was sober just recoiled when they found out I wasn't drinking. Mm. So I started thinking, well, that's fairly instructive of perhaps the type of men that I used to be attracted to when I was drunk. And and I realised that whole bow to wow factor is actually mm. quite it's real, you know. And it's, uh, so. It's, it's interesting that when you take that out of the equation that you do realise that the men that you were gravitating towards aren't so good. Only when you sneak a look at him through one
1: eye the next morning do you realise just how drunk you were last night. <laughs> um, is there anybody in the room who can't relate to that um, at some stage in their life? But, look, there is a serious side <laughs> to this. I mean, being intoxicated and being female in pubs and clubs is potentially very, very hazardous indeed. I mean, uh, Mm. young Uh, women. Girls are putting themselves at grave risk of sexual assault. It's happening all of the time. You you talk a a little bit about this when you're very young in Scotland, actually. Mm. A couple of guys trying to take advantage of a few girls. So it's, it is not just unwise in terms of perhaps meeting someone that you might have a meaningful relationship with, but it's unwise because it's bloody dangerous.
0: Yeah, and that's what I, when I sort of started interviewing a lot of the experts on this, and I mean, I don't think that women should be the ones that have to look out for themselves. Surely the men are the ones that should be not behaving that way in the first place but having said that if you want to be smart then yeah, you're probably not if you live on your own as i do bringing someone home that you've just met is not such a great idea when you don't know anything about them so and you're blind drunk at four in the morning but that was something that that happened and uh, yeah i think when you take that away you, you just realize that it's not actually worth that and really what are you getting out of it um but it's it's it 's what we do it's it's what young people have been doing for a long time, and it there's really how do you meet people if you 're not drunk i did I did online dating sober for a month in the book. oh my god um and it was interesting' cause i don't, I think online dating's just excruciating anyway, to be honest, but mm-hmm. um with alcohol out, out of the mix, it was more. <laughs> Well, immediately guys are just going, well, why are you not drinking? Is she an alcoholic? Like, mm. is she is she like a Mormon? Or, you know, there was all that sort of barrier in the way as well, so...
1: Wasn't your very first experience, yeah, actually... Yeah, he was an
0: alcoholic, the first,
1: the... <laughs> first guy. Ever. How weird is that? You're thinking, you know, I've given up the grog, I want to meet someone decent, and the first person you mention, an so alcoholic... Covering alcoholic cool used to that? drink a
0: bottle of whiskey a day. Which I thought was a quite interesting thing to tell me on a first date. <laughs>
1: I mean, the book really reminds us of how intertwined alcohol is in our lives. You drink when you go to the football. You drink when you go out to see live music. You drink to lose your inhibitions so that you can dance, so that you can relax when you meet someone of the opposite sex. You drink to celebrate, to mark an occasion, to deal with sadness. After having a bad day at the office, you drink at Christmas, at weddings, at parties, work functions revolve around grog. How confronting was it to you just how central alcohol had become to your life, as it is to so many of us, to to, to much of society, actually.
0: I don't think you notice until you take it away because yeah. just, it's just there. Like, it was just always there and it never occurred to me to not have a drink in a social situation. Like, I don't really drive that much. I've got an old banger of a car, so I never... I just live in the inner city and I never used to drive, so I never had that reason to, to pull back. Um, but, yeah, you realise it's absolutely everywhere and it's unquestioned and, and, you know, work drinks or going to football or, like you say, all of those occasions. And I think that it, we just have to look at the way... Obviously, there's a degree of personal responsibility in how we drink, but but the industry is marketing very heavily mm. that the the way that we interact as a community and the way that we belong and fit in is by drinking, and that's not an accident. They they do that purposefully. Um, I looked at internal marketing documents from the industry about exactly that, and and it's a very deliberate ploy to say, particularly to young people, that having a drink in your hand makes you Australian or it makes you fit in it makes you more interesting, it makes you more of, a, more of a man or more attractive and all this sort of thing. I mean, they say that they don't, but it's clear that they do. Mm. And so we live in that environment it's, and, and alcohol is available everywhere at all times of the day and night, then it's kind of in your face all mm. the time.
1: We have this national culture, really, of alcohol consumption. Our sports figures are prodigious drinkers, you know, boonie, 50... Two cans, was it? Two two
0: cans and one flight.
1: Between um, Australia and London on the plane. Anzac Day and Australia Day, perhaps our two most Australian public holidays are essentially excuses to get plastered. What's the history of our association with alcohol, well, I mean, and, and how, how how does our history and our culture of drinking compare to to other countries? You do write a little bit about this.
0: It's very similar, I think, to Scotland, where we we grow up, you know, thinking that our national identity is absolutely based on alcohol, and and you know, in somewhere like Scotland, where whiskey is the biggest export, and of course that that is true to an extent. But I don't know. I looked at, looked at this a, a bit about the the rum rebellion here, and and how um, we sort of think that we're this big nation of drinkers because we fought this rum rebellion to, for the right to um, be able to drink booze and it's actually not it's true. It's a bit of a myth isn't a, it? I mean it was, a, it was a dispute over property rights but it's become this myth because mm-hmm. it, it feeds into who we are and this sort of lovable, lovable larrikin kind of nature of ours so I think again that's partly been fostered by the industry looking at Anzac Day there's the VB raise a glass campaign that they have every year now they've raised three million dollars for um, war veterans which is obviously a good thing but how much goodwill does that buy the brewery that they're they're sort of associating their brand with this enduring symbol of nationhood? You know, the, the Aussie digger. It's um, it's quite subtle, but it's there. It's sort of every time that you raise a glass. On anzac day you're doing it for your country in my research i realized that um you know at the time the army itself was having a huge problem with with drinking and they there was i think the head of army at the time said i think it was 2009 that more people more um aussie soldiers died from alcohol-related injuries than died in afghanistan that year Mm. because they had this huge boozing culture where people were just getting plastered and writing themselves off and getting injured and um, and dying yet they're doing a deal with one of the biggest breweries in the country. I I just think we need to look at that as is that something that's appropriate? We see it with sport as well. It's just the way that we associate every cultural pastime that our community values Mm -hmm. seems to be linked to alcohol and then we wonder why young people associate their sense of identity or their sense of belonging and being Australian with getting drunk. I mean, Mm -hmm. it's not happened by accident.
1: Yeah, I mean, sport's a classic example. The most watched Australian sporting event every year is the AFL Grand Final. Uh, and it's got alcohol branding
0: right across well, it. They I have think. a giant inflatable pot of Carlton draft that floats over the MPG yeah. every year. I mean, the, 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 one of the issues with the, the sport problem, I think, is that the industry is not allowed to market, uh, to advertise to children um, during before, the, before 9pm in peak children's viewing hours. But the loophole is that they, they can do so if it's a live sporting event. Yeah, the, the government has made inroads on this, and last year um, they actually spent $25 million giving sponsorship money to sports that that vowed to not take alcohol money, to take money from alcohol industry, and instead they would get sponsored by the government, much like they did when they kicked tobacco out of sport. But the biggest sports in the country, AFL, Rugby League, Rugby Union and cricket, wouldn't sign up to it, and... That's the problem the government has. That they, when when the health minister was asked why this was happening, she said, "Well, we're not wowers. We're not going to force anyone to do this." And so mm. that's that's always the thing that they come back with because the industry are very good at using that term, mm. which goes way back into our cultural history. That if you are a wiser, you're someone who's trying to curb civil liberties and you're trying to spoil the fun, and it's very un-Australian. So um, governments are very spooked by that.
1: Jill Stark talking to me back in 2013. As I said up front, many things have changed since then, one being that the Raise a Glass campaign Jill referred to has been scrapped. You can find a link to the original interview and publication details of Jill's book on our homepage. That's it for this Big Ideas. Thanks for listening. Bye for now.
0: You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio, and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.